Please remain standing and turn with me to Psalm 2, which we sang earlier, now we'll read it. Psalm 2 says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Amen. Let's turn now to our sermon text in Acts chapter 4. We're going to pick up reading here with verse 13. And read through verse 31. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly, in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats 
and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hands to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Amen. You may be seated. I love a lot of the very rich and evocative imagery in, uh, that's found in the so-called minor prophets, those last 12 short little books of the Old Testament. And in one of them, in the prophecy of Amos, chapter 3, Amos says this. He says, the lion has roared, who will not fear? The Lord has spoken, who can but prophesy. Probably heard stories of uh, people living and visiting Africa and uh, listening to the lions roar at night. And that very profound feeling it provokes to to hear that. Even in the distance, you, you can sense this overwhelming power, this ferocity. And when you hear a lion roar in the wild, especially if you're out in the open, you cannot not feel afraid. And in fact, it's, it's a good thing. It's a healthy fear. It's the, it's the natural, right, inevitable response to the voice of that very majestic and dangerous beast. So Amos, in his prophecy, is saying, that's what it's like for me as a prophet to bear a message from God. The Lord God has spoken, who can but prophesy? In other words, there's no other option. Here I stand, I can do no other. I cannot but speak, Amos might have said. Uh, What I've seen, heard, come what may, against me. I think that Peter and John's response to the Jerusalem authorities here in Acts chapter 4 is a lot like what Amos says in his prophecy. Their apostolic mission is actually very similar in a lot of ways to Amos's prophetic mission and their experience of carrying uh, the explosive, uh, we could say, inexorable message of the resurrection of Christ echoes that experience that Amos had of being a prophet. So let's look at this passage in three parts this morning. First one will be nothing to say, verses 13 to 18. Second one will be no way to stay quiet, verses 19 to 22. And then third will be no threat to God's plan, verses 23 to 31. So nothing to say, no way to stay quiet, and no threat to God's plan. So first, nothing to say. Uh, That, of course, is referring to the Jerusalem leaders here who simply cannot come up with any effective reply uh, to Peter and John here, this uh, mockery of a trial. What are they going to say? What can they say? There's nothing. They have have nothing here. 
as we saw last time, all of the very stubborn facts are on Peter and John's side. There's the lame man, except he's not lame anymore. He's walking around right there in front of everyone who knows that he was lame and he was 40 years old, more than 40 years old. It's, it's undeniable. It is public. Uh, everybody around the temple knew what had happened. Uh, Peter and John are, you could say, holding all of the cards here. And the authorities are at a loss. Uh, I love verse 13 where it says, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Uh, John 7 says something similar about Jesus himself, that when Jesus went up into the temple and he began teaching, it says the Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? Not that Jesus had never studied the scriptures, but he hadn't been through maybe a formal rabbinical training that they might expect from such a profound teacher of God's law. And uh, Jesus answers them, well, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. And what was true for Jesus, once again, turns out to be true for his apostles as well. In the case of Peter, we should realize what's happening here is especially remarkable in the details of how this account is told. Because do you remember Jesus' trial? Right after his arrest, when, when Peter was following along in a distance, and, and he comes into the courtyard of the high priest where Jesus has been brought to stand trial and and you remember what happens when that one servant girl sees him standing there by the light of the fire flickering off of his face. And Luke 22 says, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking, looking closely at him, she said, this man also was with him. Hour or so later, somebody else says, certainly this man also was with him for he too was a Galilean. And that day, under those circumstances, you remember the very disappointing outcome for Peter. Peter denies it all. He says, I don't know him. I don't know what you're talking about. But what a transformation. The resurrection of Christ and Pentecost have brought about in Peter's life. Because once again, in this circumstance, people now recognize that Peter has been with Jesus but Peter's response on this day could not be more different from what it was on that day. I think this whole passage has a lot to say to us about our gospel witness as individual Christians, as a church. Here's the first thing I want to challenge you with today. I want to ask you, when people interact with you in your daily life, um, could it be said of you that they recognize that you have been with Jesus. Sometimes I like to get out of my office and work in a public place for a while. And recently I was, I was out and, and somebody I knew recognized me while I was working on some sermon stuff. And they came over and they mentioned, oh, you must be preaching on the book of Acts. And I said, what gave it away? Of course, the stack of commentaries on the table. Acts written in inch and a half letters. And I want to ask you that question. What, what would give it away that you have been with Jesus in your daily life, in your conversation, in your interactions with people? Is there any indication that you have been with him? 
What in your outward-facing life would give that away to people? Or is that this kind of compartment of your life that if you're honest with yourself, you actually pretty effectively conceal? That is something you kind of save up for church and, and for home, for your private life. But maybe you just as soon it didn't come out in your public life. See, if we're going to be effective witnesses for Christ, we need first, first of all, to have been with Jesus in the first place. We need to be seeking his presence continually, as Psalm 105 says. If we haven't actually been with him, then nobody's going to be able to perceive that we have been with him. We need to be with him first. And then like Moses, if we do that, like Moses, when he would leave the tent of meeting, you remember, with his face shining with the glory of God? Well, I think what the Lord will do is he will equip us to shine out that light of Christ's goodness and truth and grace outward toward the people that we interact with. It all starts with being with Jesus in the first place. But when we have been, let's not compartmentalize that in our lives, not conceal it, let's not cover it up, hide it under a bushel, no. Let it shine. Not, not, as I think we so often do, not wrap it up in a cloak of what is basically secularism, carefully tailored to look just like the rest of the world because if it were known that we have been with Jesus, it might cost us something. So the authorities send Peter and John out and they look at each other and they say, well, what shall we do with these men? Everybody knows they've done a remarkable miracle. We can't deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, what kind of sense does this make? It's completely irrational what they're saying. We know this is true, and therefore we're going to hush it up. Let's warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. And this is how tyrants have always dealt with Christianity, down through the centuries, even to the present day. We can't refute it, we can't deny it, and we can't find any charge that will really stick against the Christian community that is spreading it. And so what option do we have left? It's the option of brute force. We just have to hush it up. And so they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Well, of course, you know that's not going to fly with Peter and John. And I love their response. No, Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. The answer there is obvious. It's rhetorical. For we cannot but speak. We cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. In other words, the lion is roared, who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken, who can but prophesy? And Christ is risen. And we've seen him alive. And he's entrusted us with a mission. And he's poured out his Holy Spirit upon us. So who can but speak of what we have seen and heard? Uh, think of how the Apostle Paul echoes this in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. When he says, if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground of boasting. It's no great shakes. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel, Paul says. It's that very same compelling prophetic impetus that was laid upon the heart of Amos in the Old Testament and on the heart of Peter and John here in the New. We can't not speak about Jesus. Now we've, we've talked a little bit about that almost automatic inward need 
to speak God's message that characterizes this prophetic attitude. Uh, but that's not the only thing that accounts for uh, the fact that God's messengers must speak the message. We also have to understand it's a solemn responsibility and a choice of obedience. Um, it's not as though Peter and John had no choice, like somebody had given them truth serum or something. We just can't help it. just keeps coming out. No. Um, it was a solemn duty for them, and they were doing this in obedience. Think of what the Lord tells Ezekiel in Ezekiel 33. This is a warning for all of us. Ezekiel, you are a watchman for Israel, God says. And if a watchman sees the enemy coming and he blows the trumpet, of the warning trumpet, then anybody who loses his life in that battle has only himself to blame for ignoring it. But if that watchman decides not to blow the trumpet of warning, well, then whose hands is the blood of those who perish in the attack going to be on? It's going to be on the watchman's hands. We cannot but speak because we have a solemn charge from our Lord and King and because people need to know. People in a real, very real sense depend upon us to tell them the message. Their eternal destiny depends on it. How will they hear without someone to tell them? But then back on the other hand again, I do think there is in Peter and John here that element simply of a deeply felt, compelling inward drive to share with others this good news that has so transformed their own lives. So think of the game that we play with our kids where we say, don't smile, don't smile, and of course you can't help it. The smile just breaks out on your face it's from the inside. You can't not do it, just like you can't not fear when the lion roars, just like Amos couldn't not prophesy, and nor could Peter and John do anything but speak about what they had seen and heard. It's like the grins, like the laughter brimming over from a child who can't not smile. We, we Christians often spend a lot of energy, sometimes waste a lot of angst, trying to figure out the right way to do evangelism, trying to figure out exactly what we should say and how, perhaps more energy than we spend actually doing it. But the picture Peter and John give us here is not of two men laboring over what to say and worrying about saying the wrong thing or agonizing over getting up the gumption to go and speak about Christ. No, it's quite the opposite. These are men who can't help speaking about Christ. And wouldn't that be a better goal for us to strive for when we think about our own desire to grow in sharing the gospel? And so we should ask, how do we get from here to there? And I think a lot of it has got to begin with the last part of their statement. We cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And how often is our struggle to speak about Jesus so hard because we have not immersed ourselves in the message, in seeing and hearing Jesus in his word. We're not going to have this inward compelling drive to speak the good news that we see in Peter and John, unless we ourselves are filled up with it to the point of overflow. And how is that going to happen? It's going to be because we have lingered long in the presence of Christ and listened diligently to his word and vast gratitude in the forgiveness of our sins through faith alone in him alone. It's going to fill us up to overflowing so that we cannot 
Pretty remarkable to see then just just how at a loss uh, these authorities are then to <clears throat> kind of put the kibosh on Peter and John's ministry as they had hoped to do. All they can do is threaten them. But as you can see, the threats are very empty threats, verse 21. So let's go on now to see what Peter and John and the church uh, do about those threats. It says, when they were released... They went to their friends, and it's interesting, the, the Greek literally reads there, they went to their own. And commentator Daryl Bach um, makes a bit of a point of this idea of going to their own, thinking about what is the church, what is this church, the way that the church for Peter and John is this place of belonging. It is a community of people who are waiting there to receive Peter and John, and to surround them with comfort and affection, and together with them to turn to God. And that is the kind of church culture that we ought to be seeking to build here at Resurrection, that when we come together in this place, out of our struggle in the trenches of daily life, that we would be able to know that we are coming to our own to a place where we belong. And we ought to be seeking to be that kind of place for each other. Be thoughtful about it. It says they went to their friends or their own, and they reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, what did they do? It says they lifted their voices together to God. Yes, Peter and John have just been arraigned by some of the most powerful people in their land. But their power pales in comparison to that of the one the church is turning to now. As they say, as now they begin, Sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Do you see immediately the settled confidence that their shared conviction of the sovereignty of God brings to their life there among the people of God. See, when we talk about the sovereignty of God, the goal is not to master a point of doctrine. The goal of that point of doctrine, which is so central to our faith, is that when you face the threats of a hostile world, as Peter and John did, that you will be able to turn, we will be able to, as a community, turn together to this sovereign creator Lord. So trusting him to act on our behalf that the opponents of the gospel will never be able to silence us as we bear faithful witness to his message of salvation. Because we know who he is. We turn to him and trust him as that sovereign creator God. Verse 25, this is not only the sovereign God of creation. This is the sovereign God of the covenant. A sovereign God who has acted in history in the time of David. 
made promises long ago to him and through him for the future that his people now in their present moment are remembering and laying hold of by faith as it applies to them in this present moment. As they say, through the mouth of our father David, your servant, you said back then by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? And they're quoting from Psalm 2, which we've sung, which we've read, and they're applying it now to themselves. Um, At the time the psalm was written, God's anointed king, actually physically on the throne of Israel, was who? It was David. But you see, now the rulers have gathered together against the son of David, against Christ, God's anointed Messiah. Anointed, that's what Christ means. That's what Messiah means. God's anointed king. And you may remember from last time uh, how Peter quoted from Psalm 118. Remember what, how he used that psalm back in verse 11 of this chapter. We talked about how the religious leaders who had grown up singing that psalm 118 uh, would have thought of themselves as the rejected stone. The stone is Israel, they would think, and the builders who rejected are the nations around us, the Gentiles. They keep rejecting us, but God is going to make us the cornerstone yet. And Peter tells him, no, that's not how it works. Christ is that chosen stone And you, in fact, are the builders who are rejecting him, who have rejected him. Something very similar is happening here as the church uses Psalm 2, and something else Daryl Bach points out very helpfully. Psalm 2 also speaks about uh, the nations, the Gentiles, raging against the anointed king of Israel. But the way the church is praying this psalm, what they're saying is, Lord, the leaders of our nation have actually joined forces with the Gentiles. They have aligned themselves with the nations and they have worked together to crucify Jesus, your anointed, because the Lord Jesus, he is your anointed holy servant, verse 27. And we belong to him. And that's why we are asking you now to make the rest of Psalm Psalm 2 true in our lives as followers of Christ the King. How it says that he who sits in the heavens laughs and the Lord holds them in derision. So futile are their attempts to rebel against him, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill, which was fulfilled in the highest of ways when the Lord Jesus ascended into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God the Father. You see, it's no longer Israel versus the Gentiles, as the Jerusalem authorities would have thought of the great struggle. It's Christ and his community Versus all comers, Jew and Gentile alike, who would oppose God's anointing. And so now, Lord, they say, look upon their threats. Look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. While you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. More than one commentator notes here. The kinds of things the church does not pray for. In this case, they don't pray for relief for themselves explicitly. They don't pray even for an end to the opposition. They don't pray for the defeat or destruction of their enemies. In this, not in this case. Not that it's wrong to pray for those things. And God, God's word models for us many times in other places. Uh, God's people praying both for relief from their suffering and for the defeat of the opposition. But the point is, what's the focus here? What is their priority in this case? What do they want God to do for them? They want him to give them the courage 
to keep speaking with boldness. And they want him to keep acting with his almighty power to vindicate that message. To make the power of Jesus unmistakable in the life and ministry of the church. That'll be our prayer, our desire. For God to give us the courage to keep speaking and for his almighty, almighty power to be unmistakable as the message goes out from this congregation. In verse 31, God gives a very dramatic, supernatural answer. It says, and when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. And I think we sometimes lose sight of that present living, active reign of Jesus Christ from heaven as God's anointed king when we actually go out and try to live as Christians in a hostile world. We've got to remember that Jesus did not only die on the cross as a sacrifice for our sins. He did that. And that message of the cross is absolutely integral to the good news that we carry. People need that forgiveness. People need that relief from guilt and the shame of sin that's only found through that cross of Jesus. But that is not the end of the message because we serve a risen and a reigning Lord Jesus and God has set him on the throne of heaven just like Psalm 2 talks about. And the nations can rage all they want. The peoples can plot against him. But their threats are empty. And they are no threat ultimately to the plan of God. There is nothing that they can do ultimately to oppose him. He who sits in the, in the heavens laughs still. The Lord holds them in derision. We on the other hand, have the privilege and the duty of serving that heavenly king, the Lord Jesus, of being his ambassadors, of a living and reigning Lord, to carry his message of salvation to other people with urgency. They need it today because Christ is speaking to them today, and that's a serious responsibility. But it's also the most hopeful responsibility in the world because his kingdom cannot fail as he reigns or earth and heaven. A lion has roared, who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken, who can but prophesy? And Christ has risen, who can but speak of it? Every chance we can. So let's go out into this week not thinking, I don't know what to say, I don't want to offend people, what will people think of me, what if I say something wrong? No, let's go out thinking, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise, the glories of my God and King and the triumphs of his grace because we cannot but speak. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, keep us near to Jesus, seeking his presence continually so that we would be so full of the message, the good news has come through him that we cannot but speak of it. And so that wherever we go, wherever we are, people would be able to 
perceive that and recognize that we have been with Jesus. We would be eager to speak, not just eager to speak, but unable not to speak of the hope that we have in him. We ask this in his name. Amen.